We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Welcome all, everyone, from the uh, Archaeology Podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel introducing your Rock Art Podcast, Episode 57. We're going to be hearing from Dick Dixon, who's got a long-term association with uh, China Lake and Ridgecrest, working on base, but also working as a docent, helping two people understand and get impressed with the nature of the remarkable rock art record of the Coso Range. This is a little different one. You're going to get an insider's view, and I think it'll tickle you to no end. Hello, everybody out there in in the archaeology podcast land. This is your host for the Rock Art Podcast, episode 57. I'm Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation, and we're blessed and honored to have a, a, a bit of a different uh, show today. Dick Dixon, who is a, um, an engineer of sorts and also uh, uh, someone who has a tremendous background in working on the China Lake Naval Weapons Center base and a passion for the study of rock art and who has worked as a volunteer and also as a board member of the California Rock Art Foundation. And he will be discussing his, his interest in the study of rock art, how he got that way and where it went to and what his uh, actions have been done done with him and what it all matters in the big picture. Uh, Dick is brilliant. He's you know ambitious and, and very thorough in his efforts 
and he's been a, a tremendous blessing to us at the California Rock Art Foundation. Dick, are you there? I am here, Alan. Well, Dick, it's a pleasure and an honor to have you. We have uh, three segments. Each one is like about 15 to 17 minutes. And normally it goes like this. I, what I do is I, I open it up and I ask you sort of the million dollar question. How'd you ever get involved with sort of the, your work at in Ridgecrest on the base of China Lake? And uh, indirectly then your study of and an interest in petroglyphs, rock art, and all things history and prehistory. And I know that's a big question, but we all have, we, all, we almost have about twenty minutes to talk talk about it. <laughs> so that'll at least give you you know a chance to to uh, reflect and say a few words, don't you think? I suppose so. So where did it all begin? When did you move to uh, Ridgecrest? I moved to Ridgecrest in 1985. Oh, my word. I was active duty military at the time. got stationed here at uh, what was then uh, Naval Weapons Center, NWC. I got off active duty in 1989 and immediately went to work for civil service. Started from there and worked at a variety of uh, places and things on the base, including out at the uh, electronic combat range. During the early 90s, had a chance to explore all over that range out there, see a lot of both the rock art and the mining sites out there. And to your other question as to what really got me interested into the local history, uh, both the Native American and just the history of the area from the Euro-Americans, would have been back around the 1996, 97 time frame. I took over a test facility on the far northeast corner of the China Lake North Range, which uh, you know better as the Coso Rock Art area. It was a facility called Junction Ranch at the time a test facility, and it encompassed uh, pretty much the whole northeast corner of the range right up to the boundary, which is at Darwin, uh, California. During the course of running that facility, I was asked very often to give tours to VIPs that would come on the base, a variety of VIPs ranging from senior uh, military personnel all the way up to congressional aides and some senators and things of that nature there. And as I would take them out at, uh, back then, I was, uh, at the time, I was one of two people who had uh, been through all the training and was authorized to take these folks uh, off-road walking tours as well as, you know, driving tours to a variety of sites, and I started taking them to the the mining sites that were up there, the old mining sites from the late 1800s and early 1900s, and to the rock art sites and various other, not just necessarily petroglyphs, but areas where they were hunting blinds and, you know, obvious Native American-related. Uh, and I realized fairly early on in that tour process that I was getting tired of answering questions 
with I have no idea and I really don't know. It's just a cool mine site or it's a, a cool Native American site. I can't tell you anything about it. So I took it upon myself to start reading about some of this stuff initially just to be able to talk a little more intelligently about uh, what it was I was showing folks, uh, historical and cultural aspects of that facility and the surrounding area. And I bought a number of books uh, from the museum and various other locations, you know, in, in Lone Pine and Independence and Bishop and places like that, uh, Big Pine, places that sold books. I read, and the more I read, the more I really got interested uh, into reading. And one thing led to another, and I was hooked. And I, I could not uh, get enough of it. And unlike a lot of other folks, I'm sure, I had the unique position and situation uh, with my job on the base to go and see a lot of these things, sites that no one else could see, even on the base at the time and to this day. I would say a good 90% or more of the people that work on this base aren't allowed to go up there. Even they don't get to see those areas. I was very fortunate. I was very fortunate to have access to those sites and to have somewhat uh, of the ability to roam, if you will, around and find uh, some other sites. One of the things at the time, obviously, I had, was limited to the publications that were available at that time. I, I will say the Pringle Baird, um, the first study that was done, published, uh, you know, identifying the a lot of the petroglyph sites up there. Yes. They actually, that that three gentlemen uh, in their book, uh, they identified the sites, they identified the locations pretty precisely. And mm -hmm. they talked a lot about the sites right on that area of uh, test range that I was. And so I started researching and sure enough, I could find exactly where they were referring to. Uh, Junction Ranch itself uh, was an actual ranch house in the late 1800s, but it was a stagecoach stop and a freight stop as well. Kind of a crossroads that uh, you could turn due west and go to Coso Village, the, the uh, mining camp there. You could go north up to Cerro Gordo and Darwin. You could go east down through Shepherd's Canyon, off down into Panamint City and up into Ballarat. And that, that ranch site has a, a pond there that, that's fed, and it's always been there, I guess. They, it was especially critical for the, the freight and stage stops and horse changes. In their book that they wrote, they talked about a series of things that were about 100 yards due west behind the pond up on a little ledge area. I had never walked back that far, had no desire or need to walk back that far, but when I read it in their book, I did. And <laughs> lo and behold, uh, there was exactly what they were describing, the rock rings where the you know, where the housing houses had there the the tents had been not tents. Um I forget the names, the little grass shacks they put up. Yes. Um, wiki ups or whatever they're called. They had those, they had up on the ledge where, where they described them, matates and, and down into the bedrock of the, the, the basalt up there. So that was interesting. And from that point, I started paying more attention to what was in their book. But it wasn't just that. It was 
fascinating to read everything I could get my hands on for the Paiute and Shoshone, their culture, their myths, their, uh, you know, lifestyles, how they survived, what they, uh, you know, the migratory habits, everything I could find uh, about that made it, it made it much more interesting. And I read everything I could get my hands on about the petroglyphs, the different motifs, what folks thought about them at the time, or if they tried to interpret them, things of that nature there. But it dovetailed very nicely with my other research, which was to understand our history up there, the mining history, which started around 1861. Dr. Darwin French came back through with an expedition to find the Lost Gunsight Mine that happened uh, during the Donner Party and the uh, exodus up through Death Valley, uh, discovered some uh, a silver load up there. But as I started reading about the mining history, they, they, crossed, they cross-referenced and they dovetailed. And uh, there was a lot of information about the uh, firsthand accounts of the Paiute and Shoshone culture and uh, the peoples at that time from 1861 through the late 1890s that was documented in the diaries and and the accounts of these miners, which also uh, gave some insight into what we thought, our perception of them. I, I thought all of that was very fascinating. I know, Alan, you are familiar with one of the cultural, uh, less appealing cultural aspects of the Paiute and the Shoshone relating to the shaman. And it has something to do with a shaman who fails to do his shamanistic duties three times in a row is typically stoned to death or or he's put to death in some form or fashion. He's considered to have failed his shamanistic duties. And I had read about that in one set of group of books. I then ran across a diary account of a young lady who had befriended a shaman, I believe in the book, the account was he was Shoshone. And at the time, it's important maybe for your listeners to understand if those early interactions between the Euro-Americans and the folks up here, exactly what happened in South America when the Spanish came happened here. And that when we started interacting with any with any amount of frequency with the the local Native Americans, we brought the diseases that they weren't immune to. And there was a mass dying off of a lot of folks. And of course, the shaman couldn't do anything about it. No matter how much they wanted to or tried, they obviously couldn't cure these diseases. And a lot of folks died, which means a lot of shaman <laughs> failed in their duties. And there was a mass killing off of the shaman. I mean, the whole cultural history, probably the understanding of the petroglyphs was, uh, you know, because of the shamans, you know, most likely having been responsible for those disappeared in a blink of an eye, relatively speaking. The government obviously figured out what was going on and put a stop to it, but by that time, it was too late. We'd lost a lot of knowledge base. Well, this young lady interacted and befriended an older shaman. She knew all about this, and she asked this shaman one day, how was it that he was so old and still a shaman? They just weren't around anymore. And the way she put it in her diary was that he chuckled 
And he told her anytime anyone came and asked him to do whatever it was his shamanistic duty was, he suddenly had a dream quest that he had to go on. So, <laughs> so his way of avoiding failing was just not to do it. So yeah. Yeah. makes sense. The whole story, uh, all of the written documentation, the dovetail between the, the mining history and the settlement by the Euro-Americans plus what I've been able to read, it, it just is fascinating and it becomes a passion. It's just something you can't stop, I guess is a good way to put it. Well, for those that may be unaware of what the country is like or what the, what the area we're talking about is, we're talking about an area in Eastern California. It's actually um, you know, a million acres in size. It's quite a remarkable place because the uh, government, the military, has cordoned off an area that contains one of the greatest concentrations of rock drawings in the entire Western Hemisphere is found within about 100 miles on the North Base. And what's fascinating about that area is it's extremely well-preserved. Is that right? Uh, do you get the sense that, that the area has been protected it is extremely fortunate, Alan, uh, since about 1943, the Navy took over that property. They essentially evicted uh, what few miners were still living and operating there, and it's been under government control. So folks have not messed with it. Uh, it's not like public lands where people have free access to most of those sites. They haven't had up here. They, and of course, you got in 1943, there was hardly anybody living in that area up there. So when the Navy took over, that, that went down to almost zero then. There was nobody living there. And that remote part of that range was really not even, they didn't, the Navy didn't start using that part of the range and really being up there to any great consequence until the 1980s, uh, before, you know, it was really started to expand and more roads and test sites were put in. So it was, it's extremely well protected. Yes. I will tell you this. Due to the nature of that test facility up there, it was protected with horse patrols. Oh. And so not only was it remote, but it had a constant horse patrol presence, keeping anybody who thought about trying to come on and loot the sites, the burial sites and other sites. That was a big deterrent uh, at the time. And that was that was done well up into the uh, late 80s, these horse patrols. So it was doubly protected in that remote area. Thanks. I never heard about those horse patrols, but I'm sure they are rather remarkable. Okay, uh, gang, I'll see you on the flip-flop. We'll be coming back, and we'll dig a little deeper into Dick Dixon's extraordinary experiences with the China Lake Naval Weapons Center, rock art, uh, prehistory and history on the flip-flop. See you, gang. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on, and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart what's the easiest choice you can make window instead of middle seat 
Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket. Outsourcing business tasks you hate. What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello, gang. Welcome back to the Rock Art Podcast. This is episode 57 with your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and our guest, Dick Dixon. And we're uh, leading the uh, journey today talking about one of our favorite places, and that is, of course, the uh, Weapons Center at China Lake, the expression of Coso Rock Art, from a little bit of a different perspective than we've probably had any of a time in the last 60 or so episodes. And that is from someone who had a direct experience working on base, seeing some places that certainly I have not even seen, and that uh, led private VIP tours, and then also had an experience working with the Matarango Museum and conducting their tours as well into uh, the only main canyon that's publicly available to be seen. Dick, what, what, is that, what is that exactly like, and what do you have to do to become a, a tour guide per se? Well, becoming a um, uh, an authorized uh, tour guide uh, is essentially that you're authorized by the base proper, even though it may be Matarango Museum. Uh, Matarango Museum coordinates and hosts these training classes twice a year, typically in the spring and again in the fall, and you just sign up for them, and then it is a half-day course typically at the museum put on by the base personnel police department public affairs uh, and a number of folks that come in and lay down all the rules and regulations for the naval air weapon station NAWS, which is the owner of the land they come in and explain all the do's and don'ts then they typically uh, once you're done with the classroom training they're uh, the afternoon takes you on base. They go through all of the process and procedures you would have to to get through the front gate. They show you how to go to the range control center and pick up your range radios. You have to have range radios. And then they take you up to the actual petroglyph site, which, by the way, for those listening who've never been, it's approximately a 50-minute drive from the main base to get up to this site. It is very remote on the base, which should give you some idea how large the base is, landmass-wise. But after that, uh, you are considered approved as uh, you will get a badge, and then the museum coordinates uh, with all that. 
back in the 90s, when I was civil service, uh, first tour of civil service there, I obviously gave tours anytime the admiral or his staff or public affairs or my upper management on the range department asked me to. I did not and was not part of the museum petroglyph tour group at the time. And I obviously went to a lot of different places as I took my uh, visitors around. I roamed all over up there, typically had at least a half a day, sometimes more, to take them to a lot of remote sites. Unfortunately, those are sites you will not get to see through the museum tours, but that's okay. There is plenty to see in the Little Petroglyph Canyon. Later on, uh, I would say through the early, uh, up to about 2000. 10 or 12, I, I, have, I was not working on the base and I didn't do any of that, but I still participated in some tours just due to the nature of some of the um, projects I was involved in as a contractor for the base. And the people that were giving the tours kept asking me, why don't you go get through the museum and get recertified again? So they twisted my arm and I did a number of years ago. And I've been doing the tours ever since, uh, both for the museum and when the base asked me to come do tours, which still happens. Um, those are independent of the museum tours. So I've been doing the tour guide stuff, Alan. If you want to go back into the 90s for a collective total of uh, probably close to 20 years now. Wow. And of course, the California Rock Art Foundation now provides tours when we can uh, you know, uh, facilitate them and and uh, bring them in there. We also twin those with seminars for our Rock Art 101 or Rock Art 102, where we do deep dives into educational seminars and have keynote speakers and all of that and much more. It's a tour like when you 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 start at three thousand feet, you get up to five thousand feet. You're out there in the middle. In the middle of nowhere, you can't see nothing when you get out. And you go, where's where's the rock art? <laughs> For the tours, elevation here down in Ridgecrest and at the main gate is, I think, about 2,200, 2,300 feet above sea level. Okay. And after you travel up to the, the rock art site, Little Petroglyph Canyon, you were just shy of 6,000 feet elevation. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. So it, it is a, a fairly significant elevation change, which means on an average day in the summer where the temperature down here might be at 110 or 115, up at that site, it's going to be in the low 90s. Still hot, but significantly cooler. And likewise in the winter. Because of the elevation and the snow that it gets up there, typically tours are shut down in early December and they don't reopen and allow tours up until the March-April time frame. That's when the snow has melted off at that elevation and the weather is fairly decent and it's not below freezing up there. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Once you arrive on site up there for these tours. They have uh, some facilities, restroom facilities, but they're nothing more than a glorified outhouse. It is a block building um, with a uh, traditional toilet built over a hole in the ground. <laughs> so, <laughs> and 
once you leave the main gate, we always remind everybody prior to leaving the museum to use the restroom because one, there's no restroom facilities at the main gate. And then it's a good 50 minute drive to get up there. And there is no stopping on the way up. We, we follow in a carpool, maximum seven cars, tour guide driving the lead car or in a lead car and another tour guide in the last car to make sure nobody strays, trying to be a looky-loo around the base. So once you get on site, we'll, uh, folks have a few minutes to unpack and use the restroom. At that point, you cannot see the canyon. You, you're still looking out over what appears to be a slightly rolling grass plain. It's only after about a 150-yard hike, give or take, uh, that you realize you were coming down and into the canyon, uh, entrance to the canyon proper. And it's, and it's one thing to note for folks that might be considering doing this tour, once you are down in the canyon, there is no using the restroom. If you have to, you have to hike all the way back out with a tour guide to escort you. Uh, we, uh, that's been an issue for a number of folks. But it's, it's really interesting, Alan. Uh, obviously, you have been many, many times in there. It is not too strenuous to get down into Little Petroglyph Canyon. Down in the canyon, it's a lot of sandy arroyo bottom. There are a lot of rocks and boulders, uh, and at points you have to kind of sit down on your butt and slide down and and navigate through, you know, some boulder fields. But it's not too strenuous until you get at least to what is affectionately called the first waterfall. And from that point, it starts getting a little more strenuous going on down. However, currently that end of the canyon is closed off to us for a variety of reasons. Hopefully they will remove that restriction and we'll be able to go down. So it is a tour that I have seen elderly folks in their 60s and some 70s who have been able to navigate and do the tour just fine. You do need a modicum of uh, uh, physical fitness to be able to do this. It is not structured for disabled people in any form or fashion. I will say that. I know the canyon daylights, you know, as you're going into it to the right. And then you go down off to the left and it deepens and deepens and deepens. It's sort of incised as a as sort of a, a canyon. What would you say is you know, some of the, the notable elements of that experience. What strikes you the most remarkable about hiking down this narrow defile in a basalt flow? <laughs> How do you like that one? Very good, Alan. Um, <laughs> I think what strikes me the most, and it's one of my takeaways pretty much every time I go down, at certain points, the canyon walls, uh, especially on the right side as you're going down and later on the left side, are probably 75 to 100 feet high up there. It, they go extremely high. And yet there are petroglyphs up and down the entire face of that canyon wall, all the way up. and you can't help but wonder how in the heck did somebody come in 800, 1,000, 2,000, 5,000, maybe even as far back as 
10 or 12,000 based on the age of some of the, um, uh, the glyphs that are there and carve that on the side of that rock 50 feet above the ground and 50 feet below the, the, the plane above. Uh, I don't know how they got to it. I've often wondered, could be that the floor level of the canyon was significantly different during periods of geological history through there with the water flows and, you know, cutting of the canyon and whatnot. But I always wonder how they achieved what they did, uh, uh, because as you well know, some of the um, art that is on those walls is very elaborate very large and I'm sure it took a significant amount of time to put it up there to, to create it uh, it is not something you do quickly so that's I think that's my biggest uh, amazement when I go down is um, that and the proliferation of, of uh, petroglyphs and farther down into the canyon uh, several pictographs I think, Alan, in some of our recent work we've done together, uh, it's estimated that there are in excess of 25,000 examples just in that one location alone. Is that correct? Damn near. Nobody's counted them right. <laughs> so we don't know. But, uh, you know, when when Campbell Grant and Ken Pringle and Baird Looked looked at it back in 1968, I believe. They said for the entire, you know, base, there was something on the order of 7,000 images, maybe 8,000 in their original tally. Then, when people went to counting or spending a, a, an exhaustive period of time in areas where they said there was about a thousand, they found six thousand. So that that estimate, that original estimate, uh, is is very conservative, and now, even based on this very small fraction of areas that have been systematically reviewed, we've got a tally of well over thirty five thousand individual instances of rock art just in a small area, and that's that's really not even dealing with much of the the larger area that exists. And when I spoke with a base archaeologist and I asked him, well, well, how, how much of the, that area where we know that there's rock art has been surveyed, has been examined, you know, by foot or any other way to record what's there. And they said only about 30, 35%. So that means that 65% of the area that we know that there's uh, art it's not has not even been examined, so you can imagine we're missing a lot. But even so, when we're in the little petroglyph canyon, as it's called, I think we're seeing a, a good representation, a good range of the kind of images that exist all over the base. Would you agree? I have to agree, Alan. I, you know, having had the opportunity to basically see a large portion of the um, uh, petroglyph sites up there and what was in them, when you go down through um, uh, Little Pet Canyon, 
you have the largest representation of those that you will find anywhere else. And there are some in there that I have not seen anywhere else and vice versa. There are some in some other sites, uh, Sunrise Canyon and a few other sites that I have never seen another one like it. Uh, I would refer to it kind of as a one-off perhaps uh, type glyph. But the, just the sheer number of ones in there and going back to an earlier question you had, an observation, I have been down in that canyon a lot of times now. I never fail to see something in there that I've never seen before every trip. I'm always <laughs> finding different items to different glyphs, be they, you know, just the uh, random geometric patterns or the uh, anthropomorphs or, or whatever. I find things in there every time I go down because of the nature of the way they are, the rock face they're on, the direction, uh, the color of the patina, the elevation of the sun, of the time of year of the sun, whether it has been raining and they're wet or moist or not, will hide them or bring them out at different times in ways all, that you all, may have all the seen above. Them. So a million different ways we can see these rock, these rock images. Well, that's the second segment. I think in the third one we're gonna we're gonna ask uh, Dick a little bit about his experiences uh, there living in Ridgecrest and about this newfangled thing they're calling the Ridgecrest Petroglyph Festival. See you in the flip-flop, gang. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Well, welcome back. This is the third and final segment of your Rock Art Podcast, episode 57 with Dick Dixon talking about his experiences with the uh, place we call Ridgecrest, the China Lake Naval Weapons Center. And I think we're going to try to see what it's like to uh, live in Ridgecrest and, and reside and occupy the area and see uh, just what might be in store for those that uh, want to imbibe in uh, the study of prehistory. Have you been uh, someone that uh, enjoys living in Ridgecrest and sort of 
going around and checking out the immediate environs. I, I understand it's sort of a history, prehistory uh, wonderland. Is, am I correct or no? If you are into the desert environment, of course, and the mining, local mining history, or just into, say, photography and want to go up into the mountains, up and around the Mammoth area, it's phenomenal. When I moved here in 1985, a lot of folks, you know, told me, oh, you won't be here long. You're going to hate it. It's just a desert. There's nothing to do, etc." Well, I don't think they realize that I grew up in West Texas, right on the border, about three hours south of El Paso, a uh, gateway into the Big Bend National Park. Mm. Um, and while that area even though it's far farther south than geographically than Ridgecrest, the elevation was about the 6,000 foot, exactly a mile high there. But the flora, the fauna, the seasonal changes, the temperatures, everything about it was virtually identical. So when I moved here, I was right at home. I, you know, it was, um, I grew up in a small town that had a population tick over 2,000 on the border, miles from anywhere, <laughs> miles, hours, three hours from anywhere of any consequence. So this was no surprise to me. So for you, Ridgecrest was like coming back home and there was a lot to see and a lot to do and a lot that could be of great interest. Is that correct? It is correct. Uh, growing up in a little town called Marfa, Texas, I spent hours and hours, days and days in the summer and the weekends exploring all over that country, going out, you know, and seeing things. I've done a lot of that uh, here, too. Uh, the town of Ridgecrest has grown significantly since I've lived here. We're in the big leagues now. We have a Walmart, big Walmart <laughs> here now. Um so, in all seriousness, though, there, there is a few more amenities in town, although if your idea of having fun is going shopping, this is not the town to come live. Place for you. So Ridgecrest is settled in the Indian Wells Valley, and it's in the western Mojave Desert. You're looking at the Sierra Nevadas off to your west, and then you've got the Coso Range around you. And that's where the rock art is. People come there for, for a lot of reasons, but I think there's a tremendous stream of people that um, stop by Ridgecrest or in that vicinity from all over the world. And why would that be? Well, they're either transitioning and going to Death Valley. We are kind of the gateway into Death Valley. Or they are going north up to uh, some of the national parks that we have not too terribly far north of us. Or in the wintertime, uh, the ski resorts, Mammoth, is a big draw. And we're just a way stop for those folks uh, to come through. And during the, uh, the summer months and the, the good weather months, huge number of people from in uh, LA and the coast and down south and even up north in the San Francisco area all come out here with their big RVs and campers and fifth wheels. They're off-road folks with mm. uh, quad runners and the motorcycles. And as you're driving south toward um, 
Kramer Junction and Mojave or, or any of those places, you'll see off in the middle of nowhere these huge camper cities. Oh, they're tremendous. Yep. They come out on the yep. holiday weekends. So a lot of the off-road you know, enthusiasts, th this is the place to come and do that sort of thing. If you live in Ridgecrest, uh, a lot of folks do that here. But I guess it's a unique in that I can have the desert. I can only drive an hour or so and be well up in the mountains. I can go north for a little over two hours and be at a ski resort. Or I can travel three hours and be on the on the beach down on the coast in, in California. So it's a, it's a good jumping off point. Exactly. So with California, you've got this tremendous diversity. And... I do know there's people from Germany, lots of them, and, and other parts of the world that uh, come to the Indian Wells Valley, come to Ridgecrest, and because it is the gateway to Death Valley, and it's also the opening, the corridor into the deepest valley, the, the Valley of Light, which is Owens Valley, and we have the, the highest point in the continental United States, which is there at Mount Whitney, and the lowest point at Badwater, and they want to see those kinds of places and experience this remarkable landscape, this place of what place of wonder. Word of mouth to a lot of our European and foreign folks comes from the fact that we have the UK and the Italians and the Germans. We have contingents of these folks that reside here for long periods of time testing on the base, utilizing mm -hmm. our base out here. Yep. So they learn about all this stuff, and obviously they rotate in and out. And so they're telling all of their friends and relatives and folks back, you know, when they go home, all about this area, which promulgates more, you know, people visiting. I would like to take about 60 seconds real quick and tell you a very unique story. I, I have a German customer. I was in uh, Germany uh, in Ingolstadt. Uh, at the base, uh, doing some testing for my German customers. I walked down to the um, break area, which happened to be next to their weather office or their uh, local meteorologist office. And the local meteorologist in there found out I was from China Lake and he got all excited and he was jumping up and down and, and I, I didn't understand why. And he pulls out this book and he said, you have some cloud patterns and shapes out there that are unique to anywhere else in the world. We study those because of the airflow coming over from the coast over the Sierras, meeting the hot air from Death Valley and further deserts, the, you know, the, the Midwest deserts have been coming in. We create these certain cloud formations that are unique and do not appear anywhere else in the world. And he was amazed to have met somebody who lived there uh, because he had studied our weather patterns and our cloud structures extensively, apparently. I just thought that was rather unique. No, I think that's remarkable. And there's a there's a whole lot of wonder and, and beauty in the desert. You have to have sort of a different perspective in uh, loving it. It's, it's, it's probably uh, the most beautiful in some ways when you have a good winter raid and you're seeing one of those spring super blooms is that correct it is correct and on the base up at the higher elevations down in the canyon 
uh, just during a very short period of the year when the barrel cactus blossom, right? And then blossoms only last about a week and that's it. The brilliant hues of yellow and violet are just incredible on the cactus up here during certain periods of the year. It's phenomenal. Absolutely. So Ridgecrest has been uh, home to the base. Not much else was going on there except for the base. And then we had its support facility and the people living there. It grew up around the base and people lived off the base now. There seems to have been this this upwelling for the last five or six years at, in Ridgecrest uh, that we're, they, they were searching for a theme or some sort of a tug that would bring notoriety to this, what some call a backwater burg of Ridgecrest. And so they came up with a, an, an event. <laughs> and what did, yeah. they call, what did they call that event? So we now have the Petroglyph Festival. What the hell is a Petroglyph Festival? And why, w- and why would Ridgecrest be a place that would host such a venue or, 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 you know, affair? Because of the interest in the Petroglyphs and the fact that we have the Coso Rock Art District on the base, which has arguably within the district probably upwards of 100,000 petroglyphs, maybe more. So we had a lot of visitors. It has become a a pretty big deal. That seemed a natural uh, type of theme or event to host, to bring in more folks, educate them. So the Petroglyph Festival started up four or five years ago, and the base supported it, and they have an abbreviated uh, petroglyph tours up at the canyons, and they, instead of spending a half a day, you spend approximately two hours, but they can uh, have a lot more folks go and enjoy it. So not only do they have all of the activities and festivities going on at Jackson Park, they have those tours. And now, during recent years, they created a, another special park across the street from the Jackson Park, where the trees and the grass is, this one being a petroglyph park. A petroglyph park. <laughs> so what the heck is a petroglyph park? It has walking, has it has walking tours, and they have replicas uh, uh-huh. of petroglyphs all over. Wow! You know, replications in stone and things uh, put out. Uh-huh. Uh, so if you can't go to, on base to the actual little pet canyon, uh, you're going to see some exact replications of what you would see there in the version of the Petroglyph Park. Uh, It's a nice little walking tour. Uh, So that that coupled with the new visitor center and the whole ambiance of a festival environment with all of the vendors and booths and, you know, folks coming in, they couple that with our, what we call downtown Main Street, Balsam Street, wine walks in the evenings with uh, wine tasting um, and the restaurants have a lot of uh, good deals going on and food tasting. You have a a wonderful shindig, don't you? You've got a, you've got a deal going on. You got it going on. I think it's the first weekend in November when they do this, they've been doing it for five or six years. I know the California rock art foundation has been involved with it, trying to assist them and, and going and growing and, doing some outreach and uh, 
they got some interesting talent, uh, Native American talent that uh, is rare and, and somewhat unique. One is the Ram Dancers, and they're literally from the bottom of the Grand Canyon, and uh, they believe that uh, they were descended from a, a bighorn sheep animal-human figure as an ancestor, and they dance the bighorn sheep dances. Uh, similarly, they have a young man who's learned the bighorn sheep songs from a native California desert group called the Cahuilla and the Serrano. And so those are just two of the sort of exceptional uh, talent and uh, figures that you have a chance to sort of see and hear and wonder about. Rather, ra- rather amazing, I have to say. You know, that that is extremely rare and uh, quite wonderful that in the year 2021, you can still hearken back and connect back to this uh, ancient theology and this ancient, you know, expression of, call it animal ceremonialism or Native American religion. Isn't it? Isn't that amazing? It is amazing. And our current festival is this upcoming weekend. And it is my understanding that uh, they are going to have a, a very prominent person uh, coming to um, participate this year. Gosh, what was his name? Um, oh, yes, it was uh, Dr. Alan Garfinkel-Gold is going to be providing lectures and uh, walking tours this weekend okay. at our uh, festival. <laughs> that is correct. So you'll have to uh, deal deal with me, and I'll walk around and tell you a few things. God bless you, Dick. We have um, we have maybe a minute left. Dick, what would you want to tell people, the people who may listen or drop in on this rock art podcast, something about the study of rock art, the location of Ridgecrest, and your experience with the California Rock Art Foundation and all things of history and prehistory? Maybe a a bit of a reflection. A reflection is that uh, it is definitely something that's interesting and beware if you start reading about it and coming and trying to see it, it, it will rapidly become a passion that could consume you if you're not careful. But the more you read, the more you learn, not just about what's been written about the uh, petroglyphs themselves, but about the local Shoshone and the Paiute cultures, shamanism, Coupling that with our local mining history and the Euro-Asians and uh, Euro-Americans and their interactions out here. Uh, and there's so much to see. It's not just reading about it. This is the place to come, go, touch and feel and see history. It's a wonderful place to come out to. So we're talking about living history, something that you can actually visit, something that you see the physical manifestations of the past, both the historic past and the ancient, ancient past written on the land. Yeah, that's what's uh, consumed my interest for about the last 50 years. I always say it's a divine appointment. They seem to keep sending me back. <laughs> like a bad penny. They, they can't get rid of me. Dick, it's been a, an absolute wonder, remarkable, and, and quite a refreshing conversation. I want to thank you for spending time with me today. You're welcome. Well, God bless you all in Archaeology Podcast land, and see you on the flip-flop next week. Bye-bye for now.
Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts.